You're in the water loop. Hey everyone, this is Travis with Waterloop. I want to talk to you for just a minute about High Sierra showerheads. I use them in my house because they're a water efficient fixture, but I'm a big fan for other reasons as well, including their design and construction. They're made of solid metal. So this High Sierra showerhead I have in my hand right now, you can tell that it's a quality well-made product, unlike the vast majority of shower heads, which involve a lot of plastic in their construction. And that's something we need less of, right? Less consumer products with plastic in them. The other awesome thing is their nozzle design. It's a unique patented nozzle that's not going to clog like so many other shower heads. The other thing about this nozzle is that it will work in low pressure. You'll still get a strong, powerful, but water-efficient shower. You can use promo code WATERLOOP for 20% off at HighSierraShowerHeads.com. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. I am very excited to be with Fred Tutman. He is the Patuxent Riverkeeper. Fred, thanks for coming on the podcast. Great to be here. Yeah, we were chatting before we started about our our Maryland connections. Uh, you're, you grew up in, in Maryland, uh, there in Upper Marlboro, right? That's true, yeah. Okay, on a, on a farm, I think, and we'll, we can yeah. dig into that a little bit. And then I grew up in uh, up in Frederick, Maryland, mm. uh, and, you know, awesome, awesome place up there. And I also lived in Annapolis for nine years, so uh, worked on the Chesapeake Bay issues. So familiar with the Patuxent a little bit and, uh, and your work. Um, I, I wanted to talk to you about a lot of that, but also about kind of the situation in our country right now where the inequity of black Americans has really uh, risen to a, be a prominent issue, and also the angles of environmental justice and uh, kind of the intersection of all of these things. Um, mm -hmm. I think that anyone that's worked in the environmental field uh, sees that it's overwhelmingly white. Um, and I, I wanted to hear about what your experiences have been. What's your journey been like as a, a black river keeper when the environmental activism field is just so overwhelmingly white? You know, it's a fair, it's a fair question. And, and I've really struggled to see what I could bring to that conversation. I haven't said much, to be honest, mm. because on one hand, I'm excited that people are finally talking about a difficult subject, really quite ahead of the issues of diversity and inclusion, is the ineptitude with which we Americans have talked about race and class. It's, it's troubling to me because, frankly, it's tearing the country apart, as we can see in the headlines. Mm -hmm. And I haven't found the gift yet of talking about a hot topic subject like race or class publicly without at least having an unintentional effect. I don't want to give offense. I want to create more connection. Mm -hmm. And yet it's very, very hard to have that type of conversation. It's hard to find safe space to talk about stuff that we generally don't want to talk about publicly. In fact, it's not considered apropos. So that said, I haven't known what I could contribute to the conversation without giving offense. My, my general sense is that environmental movements, at least larger ones, have a sense of domain, a sense of space around them based on the worldview of the dominant members, which if that happens to be people who are white, then that's the worldview that the club or the organization or the membership you know, organization has. People of color are now being added to these movements almost as an afterthought. Hmm. And so I think sometimes these movements are really struggling against 
change. Because if you were really inclusive, one would be open to the likelihood that the organization would really be transformed by the influx of new ideas, new people, new perspectives, new problems to solve, essentially. And that, I think, is where these movements founder on their diversity campaigns. They don't really know how to talk to communities of color because they haven't had to do so before. They're protective of what these organizations stand for and their mission and all the work they put into them. And yet these are not organizations calibrated for people of color at all. Like I said, we're an afterthought. By contrast, if I go into a black community, I don't hear anyone talking about diversity at all. Mm. That's not what the attention of black communities tend to be focused on, right? They're focused on equity issues as a big picture of our journey through this society. Economic disparities, um, health disparities, environmental disparities are mixed in there with all those other things. It's hard to disconnect them. And I think that's hard. For, for whites to comprehend why wouldn't we want to invest our time and energy as people of color in these movements that have done so much work in white communities mm. that have gotten the grants and have had wins and have done all of this great stuff. These are, these are wonderful movements. That's really what I'm reading between the lines when I see these expressions of solidarity with Black Lives Matter is they're not really articulating, these organizations are not articulating what they intend to do to make themselves more um, attractive to communities of color. They're largely defensive of their track record. We're not racist. Hmm. I think that's what I'm really hearing. Actually, I don't think racism in the strict sense is really what the conversation's about. It's actually about expectations, the low expectations sometimes whites have of people of color when it comes to the environment. The presumption that we don't really care about the environment because we don't really care about these organizations, hmm. <laughs> which doesn't really line up, right? Just because we don't want to join an organization just because we're boycotting, in some cases, an organization doesn't mean we don't care about the environment, you know, generally. It means we don't care about the environment in those clubs. I think that's really the struggle. Sure. So that was a long-winded answer to your question, but I really felt I had to set the stage because I've never found a black community that didn't care about the environment. I don't know where that place is. Mm -hmm. And yet that's a presumption I hear consistently from whites. Like, well, you know, we're candidates for environmental education. We are... You know, as communities of color, we're trying to catch up with these wider organizations and communities that have taken the initiative as though somehow we don't we can't relate to those things unless we stand in the shoes of the people who are already in these clubs. Yeah. And long answers are great. There's there's so much to talk about here and to explore for sure. Um, I I wonder about this moment that we are at where organizations, environmental organizations want to become more diverse they want to address equity but they don't understand how to they don't know how to do this in an authentic real inclusive way it seems sure. like a you know it's like okay we want to change <laughs> how do we how do we go about doing that um certainly like even this podcast for me i i have no answers you know uh but i'm trying to as an individual, further my understanding um, by, by just having, like you said, open conversations and, and uh, yeah, we don't want to step in anything or, or be offensive, but it's also time just to, to let it out, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I would argue, you know, the, I guess the mantra has become Black Lives Matter. I think Black aspirations also matter. I think Black dreams of a better life, they matter. 
black ambitions. I mean, we have to be able to find all those things in these organizations that want diversity. We as people of color have to be able to find those types of fulfillments. And it's a little harder for us, was what I've been trying to say, because the expectations have not really ripened. People don't know us in sometimes in these clubs. They're not as culturally competent to interact with these communities. I think often they look for shortcuts. Let's find a black church and see if we can kind of start there as a, as a common one that I hear. When in truth, I think these organizations have to invest themselves, and I don't mean necessarily money, but I mean connect themselves to black communities and serve those communities. And, and then that process becomes much easier. Very quick anecdote, very quick, because sure. this really, I thought, was really delicious. So when all of this stuff hit, or you know, with the business in Central Park and all of these expressions and outpourings of you know, concern and solidarity, which was long overdue, let's face it, the scene of that guy being throttled, but you know, by a cop, uh, was viral. And I think these organizations are saying we don't stand with that. <laughs> if that's what racism is, we surely don't stand with that. But 30 years ago, I tried in Prince George's County with some friends of mine who happened to be white, who were in Sierra Club. We decided to get a whole bunch of people who were white to join the NAACP chapter in Prince George's County because we thought that would be really a great show of solidarity with the local NAACP. And we had a guy running for the chapter presidency at that time at the NAACP who was very interested in the environment, person of color. So we figured we'll get all these people who are white to join the club and they'll vote for this guy. And then there'll be this fusion between the NAACP and the environmental community. What happened was all these folks, you know, um, driving the staff car of environmentalism, you know, the, uh, <laughs> the Subarus and their peasant skirts and all that stuff showed up at the NAACP office to cast their vote. And the NWCP was outraged that white people were trying to take over their club. You see where I'm going? Yeah. With these were organizations that were struggling with change. And that's what's happening, I think, with these white organizations, too. They want the kind of they want to pick their change. They don't want to change the organization. They want to change the perception of racism. They want to change the atmosphere of discrimination. But to change the club is a tall lift. Mm. And I get that. And maybe some of these organizations will have trouble doing that and may choose not to do it because mm. it blows up their, you know, their, their money flows and their relationship with existing members. And I think they have to accept that. Mm. I, I don't think we need to bang on these organizations just because they're all white. That's, that's not fair. But I think we need to not be distracted by faux inclusion. Right? If these organizations are primed for it then we should go form our own organizations too or mm. join the ones that you know have an easier time making that uh, making that connection does, does that, do you know what i'm saying it's, oh absolutely yeah no it's is yeah. is is it is this just a numbers game right yeah. are you just do you just need to get your percentages to to look more diverse even not just your membership but your staff but right. what what do you think like authentic change would be then um you know if if they're not just looking to to change numbers and to have different pictures on their reports and all that kind of thing i think it requires an honest appraisal inside the organization of what it's prepared to do in order to accommodate or appeal to or serve communities of color that conversation really can occur if the organization is in defensive mode or being very, very selective. They want to prophylactically inject themselves to make sure that no one thinks any racism is going on here, which isn't really the point. The point is whether or not these organizations are really equipped to serve communities of color. 
and not to shift the burden back onto the black community if people aren't flocking to the organization. Well, if they don't want to join these wonderful organizations and all the great work they're doing, they clearly aren't our kind of people, I think is kind of the presumption. When in truth, that conversation has to be a little more, has more has to have more reciprocity. It has to be a dialogue, not a monologue. And I'm seeing a lot of monologues coming across my email chain. Like these groups are, again, they're defensive, they're reflexive. We don't stand for it. Anyone who shares our mission is free to join. Yeah, I get that in a general way, yeah. yeah. But that's not the same as saying, if you come here, your ideas will be valued, your presence you know, will be embraced, um, you can have upward mobility within the organization over and beyond a job title <laughs> that is only applied to people of color. Right. You can't move up into some of those jobs because then they'd have to hire another one. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I mean, they're, they're dead. Right. Dead right. Glass ceiling yeah, sure. Or um, or even saying, hey, we haven't done as good of a job. Not not right. you. Right. Like, hey, you know what? We haven't done good. We need to do better. Um, admitting right that that there's been shortcomings in the past. Um, exactly. Yeah. And I've never run around with a head of steam saying, oh, my gosh, these organizations, they're all screwed up because they're not enough black people there. Mostly I've been trying to understand the DNA. <laughs> like I know where I fit in and where I don't. I know where I feel welcome and where I don't. I know where I feel patronized mm. and where I don't. Mm. And sometimes I have felt patronized. Mm. You know, I've been working on the Appalachian Trail for 25 years as a trail maintainer. And it's a wonderful club. There's no question. It's a wonderful club that, frankly, is not that focused on changing its underlying mission in order to be more relevant to communities of color, it's actually interested in connecting with people of color who already share that mission. Mm. And, and so that naturally <laughs> constrains the likelihood that you'll encounter, right? It's like dating, right? You could, if you're more stringent <laughs> your criteria, the less likely you'll quickly find the person of your dream. <laughs> right. The criteria has to be very broad or you're going to have a hard time filling that criteria. That's the reality. And I, it's important to me to point that out because I don't want people to look at me and say, here's a black guy who's come to the club in order to change everything around to serve himself or to suit his. Now, if this club isn't my kind of club, I can deal with that. But don't pretend that it's because of me. <laughs> it's because of the values of this particular organization, because I know that other people of color have told me we have our own little black Twitter and we compare notes of these organizations. We know where we're. Yeah, really, really welcome, and where we're kind of like, yeah, you can come if you're like everybody else. If you don't make waves, if you don't try and change stuff, if you don't try and take over. <laughs> I think some people might be surprised to hear that perception. You know, mm -hmm. some people would be like, "Oh, come on, all, all, you're welcome at any environmental group or whatever it might be," mm -hmm. and and people don't treat you that way. You know, I, I think that that's probably surprising for some people to hear. But you're saying that's the, that's true and, and that's what you felt and your other 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 people have felt right i've had other environmentalists say to me we let you into this movement and now you want to change everything Are you serious? to my face it's like oh and i've had to scratch my head like oh so you let me in here so inherently i'm not equal because you had to let me in <laughs> you know what I'm it's not my movement it will always be your movement and you've worked in the bay program you know one of the largest funders in the area their slogan their logo is our bay Think about that for a minute. If you look mm. it through the other lens, like whose bay is that exactly? Mm. You know, mm. I mean, there are a lot of them. Or for that matter, this trail system, this water trail system, the Chesapeake Bay, named after John Smith. Mm. Think mm. about that one for a minute. If you wanted Native Americans to come flock into that trail, would you name it after that? Dude? Right. Who who was pioneering those waterways hundreds of years before? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so it's the lens. That's all I'm really saying. Yeah. I, I hesitate to say it's not racism. I think it's colorblind racism at best. 
there's no one out there saying we don't want people of color involved. They're saying we're welcome to be involved as long as we don't try and change things too much. Mm. What What else about your experiences, you know, um, the the whole Riverkeeper network, there, there's so many Riverkeepers out there. Awesome organization. I keep interviewing you guys, and I realize it must be because I love the the activist spirit and like fighting for your local waterway and all that stuff. But um, how has it been for you within that community? Like, you know, um, and yeah. I think I've made at Patuxent Riverkeeper a lot more progress than most at trying to create an inclusive environment because I felt the bar was very high, particularly for a person of color, to not have people of color involved in the movement itself would be suspects. <laughs> like, what's wrong with this guy? And he can't talk to the community like the one he grew up in and you know lives in today. So I think that's something where we're a standout. And I believe that's because we made the open call some years ago in the Bay Journal that we're gonna take off the blinders and that we're gonna not only take people as they are, but we're gonna have deeper conversations with the communities we serve in order to find out how we can serve. We're not going to dictate to these communities, this is what we do, we're not the river cops. We're... And so those transactions, I think, have altered not only the board of Patuxent Riverkeeper, right? In fact, when I made that announcement in the Bay Journal, we had two board members quit because I think they saw me as racializing. Hmm. Actually, what I thought I was doing was having a kind of an open heart. We want everyone to feel welcome to. And, and this came about because people of color had come to me at our events and said, you know, we don't really feel like we're welcome here because the white folks want to talk to themselves, among themselves about stormwater and all this stuff that's on their minds. But when we try and change the subject, we're considered as off message. That our status in these movements sometimes means that we have to defer because these guys have all the knowledge. all the, And that's where I talk about domain. That's why I call it domain. It's a sense of space. I think there's a sensibility that these are movements that are essentially white, but they're welcome to people of color. So in a sense, like I said, we're already starting out on a foot where we're, that's why I call a footnote or an afterthought. Mm. That's the DNA. We can't change that about these movements, but I think these movements can be much more honest and inward looking in terms of their own internal culture. What is it about us that makes black people stay away in droves? Mm. That's the question I think people need to ask themselves. These are perfectly good missions. And we know black people are smart enough to understand what that mission is. So how come they take a pass when they, <laughs> when they get our literature in the mail or don't come to the meeting? Not at least into the numbers that we'd like to see. And what are those numbers? What would this organization look like, for example, if it really were diverse? Mm -hmm. I, I think that pre-visualization isn't present. Actually, I had one director of a board say to me, I don't know what that vision is, but we know funders like diversity. I thought, well, that's kind of tepid. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for nothing. If I join, you guys get some more money. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, they like diversity. This is just a nice thing to have on the shelf or be part of the portfolio. Um, you know, I guess uh, in my years in, in environmental and water field, uh, in the communication side, whether it's covers of reports or social media content or whenever it might be, you know, so much of what I've seen or even been part of is like, oh, here's the here's the white people kayaking. Here's uh, you know the the people on their sailboats, and and this is what's supposed to represent protecting the environment, um, and it doesn't show some of the other. Uh, urban waterways or places where other, you know, people of color live, mm -hmm. or also the idea that, well, you don't, 
that's almost stereotyping is just to have to show an urban environment with a black family down by the water, like that that's the only place where people of color are found by waterways or in the environment is in an urban setting, right? Um, so I, I don't know if I have a question there, but it's just something I've kind of like realized and, you know, the different uh, stereotypes that happen, layers of it, really. I totally hear you. And that's the feeling I have sometimes had. It has had the effect of me being much more careful about whom we partner and coalesce with in this movement, because I realized that some of these organizations do have a reputation in black and brown communities. And to the extent we stand with organizations where black people don't really matter so much, like I said earlier, not only do black matters in a general way matter, but black aspirations don't. <laughs> mm. and those are groups we can't really coalesce with because, and I'll tell you precisely why, because I've gone into black communities and sometimes I've got a dismissive response from the community because the presumption is, quote, he's with the white folks. Mm. I'm trying to say to folks is we're with you. For the most part, we're with ourselves or we're with you. And that's why we're here. The presumption we're bought and paid for or part of some broader movement where we don't have control over the issues, that's fatal to our ability to organize in these communities. Mm. So we've had to adopt different behavior because the expectations of a black riverkeeper in black communities, anyhow, is very different. And I can't promote the same messages sometimes in exactly the same way in a white community as I could in a black community, as much as I try to connect with all. That's the kind of movement I would want to join. That's the kind of movement I've been trying to create is exactly the kind I would be delighted to join. So I know there are people who come to Patuxent Riverkeeper events and participate because they're diverse. They come for that reason. That's they awesome. to be diverse. Yeah. And that's the set of expectations I think we have to change. If you go to these meetings and you expect them to be all white, and you won't be disappointed in many instances. But there are other places where you go where you expect the space to be claimed very differently. And that's the change that has to occur in these organizations, which again is big. I'm not I'm not suggesting that that's as simple as snapping your fingers or printing a policy or posting a policy on the website. It's deeper. It's a yeah. deep inward conversation. At least we can take, uh, maybe have some hope that people are trying to have that conversation now more than they have in the past. You know, some of it might be, might be, might not be authentic, right? It might be window dressing, but in some cases, uh, you hope and you want to believe that there's some real struggle here, uh, and and trying to look at what that that uh, that means, equity and inclusiveness, and so forth. Um, I wanted to ask you about environmental justice. It's a term that's used a lot. Um, I try to cover environmental justice issues on this podcast a lot. Um, and I wanted to hear what that, what that phrase means to you. And I, I think I saw something where you like to call it environmental injustice also. Um, so could you share your thoughts? Yeah, because I think environmental injustice is a broader frame. I think if you say environmental justice, most whites assume we're talking about something especially designed for people of color. I actually think of it as much broader. I actually see most of the environmental issues we deal with as class struggles, struggles between haves and have-nots, struggles with power with, for too many people with not enough power, who need more power in order to self-determine their future. So to me, it's a very generic term, environmental injustice, that describes that contest between uh, an onerous permit and a poorer community, a um, bad discharge site, and a community that has lacked the political power to really block future permits of that sort. It is the nexus, I think, of almost everything that we work on is somehow got that, that dynamic intertwined. But I think that dynamic plays differently if you're higher on the social hierarchy. 
In other words, you can get a congressman to return your call much faster if you've got money and live in a wealthy neighborhood, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I hate to put it on the congressman, but I mean, it's that's true. a reality we know. We know this to be true throughout this country, that class matters, not just race, but where you sit in that continuum. So that's what environmental injustice means to me, is trying to fight that disruptive imbalance between capitalism (laughs) and Mm. self-interest and the rights of all. Mm. Uh, That's almost revolutionary work in a way. Yeah. It's, I, one of the reasons I try to do different uh, episodes on these issues is because I just don't think many people realize uh, the extent of environmental injustice that's been perpetuated for decades and decades, especially on that, like you said, on the class side of things, you know, how pollution, air, land, water, whatever it might be, is just, like you said, cited uh, near lower income communities, communities of color, uh, and just the incredible burden and, and toll that that's placed on people for so long. Um, how do you think that addressing environmental injustice is part of the broader push to address equity for black Americans and, and other people of color? Well, I'll tell you a secret. <laughs> a secret. Um, the messaging that surrounds seeking justice and correcting disparities and redeeming people's aspirations and uplifting them, the messaging surrounding that is so compelling and so powerful, it's almost irresistible. Mm. By contrast, if we're talking only about saving crabs and oysters, um, saving hiking trails, um, prime sailing areas, I mean, right, the messaging is very, very different, and the level of oomph behind that other messaging is pretty weak if you're talking to a community that has seen nothing but disparity. I know that people think that I'm suggesting the messaging has to be different, but I'm also suggesting that the substance also has to be different. What we're talking about, what we're trying to say. Trying to convince people upstream on the Patapsco and the Baltimore Harbor, they need to be really worried about the Chesapeake Bay. Hmm. I think they do in a general scientific sense, but in reality, it might as well be another planet. Hmm. Right? It's outside of their immediate reality. And we have to confront that the environment's just not the same for everyone. And among the differences is class, race, economic status, all of these things, literally to take the word use it, but it's true, all these things color (laughs) our perception of what's really important environmentally. Again, in these movements, by the time we get to them, the, the, the funding's already been procured, the issues have already been settled, and the program's already in existence. We just have to jump on that bandwagon. Yeah. It's got to be a more reciprocal bandwagon. That's what we're seeing now. That's what this significance is now of this, you know, Black Lives Matter solidarity. The bandwagon just got bigger. That's promising. No doubt, no doubt. <laughs> um, going back to your story, you know, growing up there in, in Upper Marlboro and you know near the Patuxent um, on a farm, could you kind of just give a little bit of that backstory and and how that led you to come back and fight for this river? I know you've got had an incredible journey uh, around the world and everything, but but yeah, how did those roots kind of turn turn you into what you are today and, and an advocate? So my great-grandfather founded a farm on the border of Prince George's and Anne Arundel County. My family still lives there. We've been there just about 100 years, actually. Um, I knew my great-grandfather. He introduced me to some of the wonders of the river, and walking in the woods, particularly in the autumn, because I can still smell the autumn leaves. We used to go squirrel hunting, and he had bird dogs. Carter Jones was his name. (laughs) 
And farming was really all that he knew, not a particularly well-educated guy, but very grounded in the land, very grounded in his particular place. So for me, you know, my, my take on the environment has nothing to do, I guess, with urban landscapes. I've, I've been fortunate enough to grow up in a family that had land and a landed heritage. You know, there used to be many more people of color in this country that had that heritage. In my case, my travels around the world, for a while I felt like I was kind of evading the inevitable fate of becoming a farmer. <laughs> I didn't see that for myself. Um, Ironically, during the COVID epidemic, I've been forced to stay at home and work from home and get interested again in the farm. And I've had a ball. I mean, I'm not saying that I've had a great time with an epidemic. Sure. I'm, as, I'm as crazy as the next person <laughs> right, right now. But I will say I found a renewed appreciation for where I live and how precious and how special it is. It's connection to the river next door, which is the Patuxent, of course, and the river of my boyhood and the lands where my ancestors are from. These are all powerful emotional ties that have been rekindled during the course of the epidemic when I've been forced to actually stay home and appreciate home. <laughs> so there's an irony there. Yeah. And, and, um, how is the Patuxent doing? Uh, what's, what's, let's talk about the river for a little bit. Um, how, how would you summarize its health and, and maybe just describe it for people that are listening from other places around the country? The production is in rotten shape. It's a D minus. It has for many years. It's a brutal truth, really, when you consider this was the river in Maryland, the only river that stayed, big river that stays entirely in Maryland, that led the charge in the 1980s, filing lawsuits in the 70s, literally, in the aftermath of the Clean Water Act getting passed, only to see all of that momentum lost 40 years later, where I don't even see a plan on the landscape, a plan on the horizon that at least one that makes sense. I know we have whips and we have uh, TMDLs in some cases and all of this is stuff that doesn't seem to be really applied. In fact, much of it during the epidemic has been deferred. Much of the compliance has actually been kicked down the road. So without a lucid plan, I don't see the fate of this river changing unless people get really vocal because that's what's worked in the past. The Patuxent was the, the river in this state yeah. that gave rise to a Bay program. A lot of people don't even remember that. There would be no Bay program if there had not been for the Patuxent and Bernie Fowler and all of these activists. It was citizens making a heck of a lot of noise that got you cleaner water. Mm. So we have to do that again. Yeah. So you, it, it's uh, probably like so many waterways where it's dealing with the multiple threats of, of agriculture runoff, of development and stormwater runoff and um, it kind of is the big pieces there. I guess a lot of the, the treatment plants have been upgraded, but kind of that, that ag and stormwater picture. Yeah, I think you're right. It is all of those thousand cuts. But you know what it also is, is the culture surrounding water protection in our state, I think, has also lowered the expectations, too. Now people believe that the stewardship is sufficient and we need to watch the water quality stuff like we watch a stock market ticker. Mm -hmm. right? I, everywhere I go in the watershed, yeah. people don't know, is the, is the water better today or worse? What was better last year? Is it better? going to be better <laughs> next year? It's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> that's that's embarrassing. Forty years of lawsuits, fighting, struggle, citizen activism, and we still don't know on any given day whether the water's better or worse. Mm. So we've have to change that apathetic and culture, but I think we also have to change people's expectations. We've never seen a water program that actually cleaned up a single river in forty years. Do you know what river has been cleaned up in the Chesapeake? I don't. Mm. Whatever we're doing, granted, while it's better than nothing. 
nothing's too low a bar. <laughs> no doubt. We need to work a lot harder at this stuff. It works. And we know what works. Citizen activism works. Lawsuits sometimes works. <laughs> Not always. Judges don't love us. Yeah. What else works? Connecting people along these rivers to empower them. I, I do think that's the work of the future. That's the work that will outlive Patuxent Riverkeeper. Uh, I've already figured out I'm not going to save this river by myself, but in one organization in my lifetime. <laughs> the job is to mentor activism, help people understand how these watershed regulatory schemes work, how you get a FOIA request or a Maryland Public Information Act request responded to, um, how the system works well enough that people can fight these local fights that you cannot stamp out. They're, they're, they're guerrilla fights in a way. Centralized yeah. movements don't fare too well on this stuff. For one, you can defund them and the work's gone. Citizen activism not driven by money and incidentally already diverse, <laughs> very grassroots, they don't have any of those deficits. Sure. One of the fights that I, I read about that I wondered if you could share was around Eagle Harbor. And I think this gets back to our, our larger conversation about environmental injustice and equity. Uh, could you tell that story? So Eagle Harbor is one of several um, towns and communities we work with along the track of the Patuxent. Um, it is historically has been a black community, really formed out of segregation in the 1920s when people of color couldn't go to local beaches. They were segregated beaches. Um, there were a couple of, I gather there were white guys married to African-American women who couldn't take their families to the beach. So they bought a block of land along with their chums and they set up their own resort. There are lots of those places actually on the Chesapeake Highland Beach where Frederick Douglass had a home is also one of those places. So now you have a population of some 69 people living on the waterfront, small town, no commercial development, and they have really trouble funding the stuff they need in order to stay current with the environmental thinking of today. Retrofitting of streams, uh, fixing of flooding problems, sea rise. There's a lot of stuff these guys do, and they compete with big towns like Bowie and uh, Hyattsville and places like that. They can't really compete because they don't have the leverage by population mass, by taxable base. So I like working in places like that because there we can really make a difference. In places like Eagle Harbor and Lothian is another town on the other side of the river that we work with. And there the relationships with the community are very organic. We can make eye contact with the people we're helping. We can have discussions about what the visioning of the community is, and we can help them get there. Much harder to do that in a big town or a big city. We could never do that, say, in Colombia. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It's just vast. Don't know where to start. So I do think small organizations like Patuxent Riverkeeper, like Riverkeepers, Waterkeepers generally, that's really our forte. We are cross-cultural, very organically connected to the communities we serve. Um, pretty accessible. I like having an office in a rural space where people can stop by and say hi to the riverkeeper and say what's on their mind. Yeah. It'd be much harder if I had to look at a form on an online thing and say, well, who are these people and where are they in the watershed? I, I feel like we really have relationships. We're part of these communities hmm. that we serve. Sure. That's a nice, that's a nice setup. Yeah. As I'm concerned. Yeah. Uh, last thing I wanted to ask you about was something that also I, I saw in an article uh, that the Waterkeeper folks put out, um, and you touched on kind of spirituality, right, and how advocating for a river and the environment kind of connects on a, on a spiritual level for you. And uh, I thought it was beautiful, and, and a lot of it really resonated with me uh, and my kind of connection to nature. And yeah, could you just share your thoughts on that? Yeah, I've been the beneficiary of many who have helped and coached and taught me what they knew. Some of them Native American. I've learned a lot, actually, from our indigenous folks. Um, 
They've shown me things. And by the way, that's one of my little axioms about being a riverkeeper where like bartenders and priests, people reveal themselves to us. They tell us their river stories and their personal stories about these rivers. But Tom Wisner, who was a folk singer, you probably knew Tom, I'm guessing, mm-hmm. was a good friend, actually. He used to, we used to beat drums next to the river and talk about stuff. And, you know, Tom was a character. He used to say, if you have something on your mind, you need to go and just talk to her. And, and he always used the female pronoun for the river, you might remember. Mm-hmm. And I've done so. And, and I do believe this river has a pulse. This river has a life force. It does endow us, those of us who love her, with a particular energy. You know, because you have a lot of failures as a riverkeeper, let's be honest. If you really dwelled on those favors, you get smacked down pretty fast. What what renews me in this work, what makes me excited to get up in the morning and go to work, is that sense of connection. I feel like I'm a part of her. I feel like I've got the wind at my back. I've got this river, the heritage of all of the activists who have come before us. We stand on their shoulders. And that's something powerful, too. It's a powerful force within us. That's what drew me to the Waterkeeper movement was that sense that the rivers need to be championed by the people who love them the most, who are connected to them, who are essentially channeling Hmm. the river. I know that sounds presumptuous. (laughs) The river god. (laughs) (laughs) It makes sense. It makes sense. Absolutely. I think people like, uh, you know, who've spent a lot of time around water uh, have really felt that that connection. Um, Fred, it was a a real delight to finally get to connect with you. I I should have reached out years ago uh, as I've watched your work from afar, Um, but I I appreciate what you do uh, for that river and and for, for the environment overall. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. The Waterloop Podcast is brought to you by High Sierra Showerheads, the smart and stylish way to save water, energy, and money while enjoying a powerful shower. Use promo code WATERLOOP for 20% off at HighSierraShowerHeads.com. You're in the Waterloop. Waterloop.